Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Margaret D. Jacobs. Margaret is the Charles Mock Professor of History and Director of the Center for Great Plains Study at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Her books include White Mother to a Dark Race, Settler Colonialism, Maternalism, and the Removal of Indigenous Children in the American West and Australia, 1880 to 1940. And her other book, where we'll be spending most of our time, is called After 100 Winters, in Search of Reconciliation on America's Stolen Lands. We're actually recording this on Martin Luther King Day. It will air a few weeks after that, but our actual recording date is Martin Luther King Day, and I couldn't think of a better day to have the the tone and tenor of conversation around this work. So I want to welcome you, Margaret, to the deep dive. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me, Philip. And I'm really happy to be here on MLK Day, too. Absolutely. You know, and... and you know, the deep dive is a is a space for actual MLK Day. You know, we're not we're not yeah. doing this. You know, conservative reimagining of of MLK. We're not cherry picking the "I Have a Dream" speech. You know, we're not doing any of of that as they work diligently to make sure that they undo all of his work. <laughs> you know, um, so we're making we're making it clear that this is a legitimate MLK Day here on the deep dive. <laughs> So, you know, going through the book was both enlightening and enraging. So I don't know if that was your intention, but if it was, well done. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm sure the enlightening part definitely was. Um, I'm not sure if the enraging part was, but that was my my takeaway. Um, and I and I say that because as someone who, not to toot my own horn, I think I'm someone who's a little bit more like knowledgeable about some of these histories than I would say the average rank and file person. It's still enraging every time I I read specificities of of this sort of um as, as you so eloquently put it, theft, right? Let's call it a thing what it is. So I, I want to give you an opportunity, putting my rage aside, um, to get a better sense of what motivated you to spend time in these spaces, documenting these stories, um, particularly from the angle of reconciliation. Well, thanks again, Philip. And I'm enraged too when I research and write this material about the history of the atrocities that were committed by settlers against indigenous people in the United States or what became the United States. Um, And ironically, I would say this book is much less enraging than my other work. My other work is on indigenous child removal, or most of it is. And um, uh, when I write about that, I just get kind of choked up already thinking about it, um, how enraging it is to me that settler states, settler people would think it's okay 
to separate Indigenous families, to take children, to, to steal children from their families. And that happened, of course, in the United States. It happened in Australia. Uh, it happened in Canada, um, most pointedly. And, and um, it's still happening in other places today. And um, so what motivated me to write this book, which I actually think is a lot more hopeful than my other work, and is that when I was doing all this work on Indigenous child removal, um, I became really interested in the fact that Australia and Canada had created mechanisms to hear Indigenous people about their experiences, to give them a forum for to testi testify about what they'd experienced in their families about child removal. Uh, in the case of Canada, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that they had for the Indian residential schools. And in the case of Australia, Australia, they had a stolen generations inquiry in the 1990s. And I was really interested that in each case, the state in those places had formally created a mechanism for Indigenous people to tell their stories and had also the reports that came out of those called for apologies, they called for reparations, um, they called for all, all types of new commemoration and um, funding into rehabilitation programs and health programs. And so I decided I just wanted to know more about that. And so I started interviewing people in Australia and Canada. And then I went to Canada for the final ceremony of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in 2015. And it was so incredibly moving. It was in Ottawa. Um, it was just amazing. And what was cool about it too was there were a lot of academics there. You know, I'm an academic. And these academics were really involved in reconciliation efforts in Canada. And, you know, I was actually, I ran into a couple friends I knew up there at this march, a reconciliation march, which really like impressed my son that I knew somebody in Canada that I would just run into them on the street at a march. And um, so, and then I, I actually went to the ceremony and with my indigenous, or not indigenous, I'm sorry, academic friends, and, um, you know, they were all doing so much what they could in their circles. And I thought to myself, well, I thought two things. I thought, this is incredibly sad to me because I can't imagine something like this happening in the United States, but I wish it could. But then I thought, you know, I'm, I'm an academic and here's all these other people who are my friends and they're all doing what they can within their circles. So it was like this really amazing for me switch in my brain that went off that said, what if you started putting your scholarship to the service of healing and reconciliation? And what if you did more than just expose atrocities and do more than just enrage people like Philip when they read your work? You know, so I thought, I want to start covering people who are working on truth and reconciliation. At first I thought I was just gonna cover like the big national efforts that were going on and compare them. And uh, you know, my, my original title for this book, You'll Laugh, was called, Does the United States Need a Truth and Reconciliation Commission? I was really focused way up here, way, way high at the you know government level. But then I realized there wouldn't really be much to say about the United States. I mean, a little bit, but not a lot. And I thought, but is there still something going on here in the United States? 
And the more I dived deeply, (laughs) the more I realized there's a lot going on and it's at a grassroots level. And I was so fortunate to have uh, a Carnegie Fellowship for two years that allowed me to really, again, dive deeply into this topic. And as part of that fellowship, I reached out to a local indigenous journalist here in Lincoln, Nebraska, named Kevin Aberesque. And I asked Kevin if he would like to work with me on a... We decided to create a podcast, which we call Reconciliation Rising. It's since expanded, and now we call it like a multimedia project. And we're actually... We made a 10-minute film. We're making another hour-long documentary. But what we decided to do was just focus on non-Native and Native people working together who were trying to fix some historical problem, Uh, non-Native people who were trying to take accountability uh, for past injustices. So the book, to some extent, ends up being a chronicle of some of these efforts. And it's very local. It's very much about Nebraska, where I am now, uh, and, and Colorado, where I grew up. But I don't think it's something that will only appeal to people from Nebraska and Colorado. No, I really think it has applications widely. And I think that's that's what really leapt out at me. So at, at the beginning, when I mentioned that specificity, that there are you know, clearly regional specifics as to historical things that that happened, um, the particular indigenous groups that are that are named are specific to the region and you know, their their history is very much tied to very specific geographies. So I, I found that actually to be critical. I think what's interesting is you as you started to highlight that within that specificity, there's also a universality that the theft of indigenous land, the human theft, the cultural theft that you highlight in the book is one that is universal to the American story. And you can trace that just through the the names that we use all the time, but often don't even recognize them as indigenous. You know, Omaha, for example, <laughs> um, and 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 others. I'm sure most people wouldn't know that that was the name of a particular group. They might know it as a city, but that's probably about it. Oklahoma as a state, right? And we can go on and on and on. So I guess the enraging part to me comes from, again, knowing so many of these these stories, but yet seeing so many concerted efforts to not tell these stories. And I would hazard to say that that's increased from the time this book has been written, <laughs> um, or published, mm-hmm. rather, where we see a, a lot more organized um, attempts to remove much of the language that I would consider to be just boilerplate language, to be quite honest, um, decolonization, colonial settler, right? Like these are words that that people are trying to remove as as serious serious historical accuracies. And in doing that, I think they they not only discredit liberation movements around the world today, but they discredit historical liberation movements like the one you describe in the book. So I'm. I'm I'm curious, as you look out onto our landscape, how do you square that with the very hopeful stories that exist within the book, particularly the the last section of the book? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, well, I organized the book in a way in my head, and maybe people pick up on this when they read it, and maybe they don't. But I want to put the book in the context, and I want to put this work in the context of truth and reconciliation worldwide. And, you know, there's problems with all of the processes that have been occurring in truth and reconciliation. And not everybody likes that term reconciliation. A lot of people have problems with it. But in general, what to me it embodies is truth telling about history and then taking responsibility for and seeking to repair that history to the extent that is possible. And to what really stands out for me is then to take even the next step, which is like not just tolerating one another, but I know this sounds, you know, perhaps not something a hard-boiled professor would say, but loving one another and coming together and co-creating a new way of being in the world. You know, again, I I love that we're doing this on MLK Day because I think about his concept of the beloved community. And that's really what this book is trying to convey with some of the stories at the end is that this is not work that's that makes you feel bad as a non, I'm a non-Native person, as a non-Indigenous person. This is not work that's meant to make me feel, you know, infused with guilt and hang my head and put my tail between my legs and skulk out of the room. It's about stepping up, really, uh, acknowledging this history. And for me, the reason it's so local about Nebraska and Colorado is it seemed essential to me as a settler to know about the places I have lived the longest and to really become intimate and familiar with them. And even this book is not enough in my mind. And I feel like I've taken many more steps since then to become even more familiar, especially with Nebraska. Um, So the idea was like, as a settler, I need to really know this place, know it intimately. And then once I know it, what am I going to do? Once I know this history, I can never unknow it. And so it's about taking that next step. How can I learn, how can I get to know contemporary indigenous people who are descendants of the people who I'm writing about their histories? And what will happen when we get together? You know, what, and I do, I'm not in any position to predetermine what happens, but if I come with a spirit of, uh, let's do something different, Let's build a different type of world. Let's build a different community. Um, and then see, I mean, and, and I'm amazed that so many Indigenous people are willing to meet me at that space. I mean, that's, why should they? You know, like, they have been so shafted throughout our history. And so I'm amazed that they're willing to come into that space And so this book is, the second half is the reconciliation stories, and it's about what happens when people come together in that space and the unexpected gifts that come out of that. So it's really about, for me, it's really a hopeful story, and it's a counter to a lot of what we're hearing now about, oh, let's let's try to ban textbooks that talk about this real history. Let's Let's not allow professors or teachers to bring up anything related to race or anything related to colonization or anything that might make 
a non-Indigenous student uncomfortable or, or non-BIPOC student uncomfortable. We can't talk about that. So the book is really um, about let's dare to talk about it and let's not be afraid to talk about it. And let's, it's actually a lot of great things can come out, out of that. And you, you highlighted a little earlier this this notion of, you know, not wanting there to be shame or guilt or all these kind of things. And I'm I'm curious, because I often hear that, right? That people will say, well, you know, I'm not responsible for what my ancestors might have done. You know, like many of the things you detail in the book, they happened. Some of it is a little bit more recent history, post-Civil War, 1860, late 1860s into the 1870s. You know, a lot of these territories were contested because they were, some were free states, some were not. How are they going to enter the Union? So there's a lot of history in in these spaces as to how are they even going to come into the United States as as free or slave states. Um and underlying that is the removal of an of indigenous people to make way for these these settlers, right? And and are they coming with enslaved um Africans or not? Right. So there's multiple levels of extraction and exploitation going on from a historical perspective. Um as we as we're detailing these stories, and I, I reference that because I'm I'm curious. Like, is is shame or guilt necessarily a bad thing? You know, like regardless of the fact that it might not have been physically you, right? Like, okay, I get it. Like, I I feel shame all the time at many of the things the United States does, and I'm sitting in Brooklyn. You know, like I'm just a dude living my life every day and I turn on the the news, I go on the New York Times and I'm deeply ashamed, you know, um, and I feel like that's healthy because it's it's it keeps my moral compass in a way that allows me to look past the empire and the patriotism and all the bullshit. Right. So I'm, I'm curious in in your mind, um shouldn't you feel shame and, and guilt at these things? Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um, uh, the problem I see is when people get stuck there and and or they don't want to feel that feeling. You know, they don't want to feel shame. They don't want to feel guilt. So they just turn away. Or you have the other problem of people who are willing to feel it but they they feel paralyzed by it then you know and so i think what's really important is to think what can we do beyond just feeling bad about something or being empathetic or compassionate toward um let's say a, a non native person feeling empathetic toward indigenous people about what they've suffered uh that's fine and and i think sometimes that can be a really good first step and in the book i one of the things i do is i chronicle an earlier what i would call um a truth and reconciliation movement in the 19th century in the united states where i do think a lot of settlers became really ashamed of what their country was doing and it was a great way to spur them to do something and um so i think it can be a really productive emotion uh but I guess in some respect, I'm aiming the book at people who think, I don't want to go there. You know, that's that's too hard. 
and I want to say, well, it it is hard, but you can go beyond it and you can do something different. And once you start taking those steps, it can be such an empowering experience. Uh, it doesn't have to be something where you're stuck in this this awkward, sad, unsettling feeling. Yeah, I mean, we I think we all should strive for action, right? Um, definitely a fan of of that. Um, but I'm I, I still come back to, you know, I, I feel like particularly when it comes to indigenous, they're like treated so often like I don't really have like a, an analogy that will be good to any listener's ears. So I'm going to say that these are all terrible analogies, right? But I think like the average person to the extent that they think about indigenous, it's it's almost like they're extinct. Like they don't really feel like indigenous people are in the fabric of the country to the extent that they still are around they're either in one of two spaces right they're on what we would commonly call a reservation right which is somewhere out in the wilderness and it's very barren and you know i could see the movie right <laughs> like opening up on that scene or they're in a casino right so it's mohegan sun or you know, famous episode of The Sopranos when Tony's an asshole and he goes to the, the native guy to try to get him to help him with some bullshit problem. You know, 25th anniversary of The Sopranos, so I've been rewatching. Um, and and so I feel like we're stuck in these spaces, right? It's, it's either they don't exist anymore or to the extent that they do exist, they exist in these two spaces. And none of these spaces have anything really to do with my life. Right. And so when I read these stories and they're so, like I said, tied to the very fabric of understanding the land in which you primarily really take for granted, but there's such resistance to, to teach it, you know, or it's, it's something that's trotted out with Thanksgiving, right. Or at a football game or a basketball game, depending on if you're still like an asshole holding on to like a indigenous mascot or something, right? Um, and I, I think most people would be, I don't know, stunned at at these stories when when they're just the rank and file, you know. So I, you know, I don't I don't know if there's a question in there, but I'm 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 curious as part of this active way in which we think about reconciliation, you know, how do we hold the mirror up so so people even understand why we're talking about reconciliation, right? Because if you feel like, you know, everybody had it rough, you know, the Irish were indentured servants too, and when my family got here, they came off a boat and nobody helped them and they made it, you know, all the bullshit, right? It It negates the real suffering of of people that were murdered and best attempts were made to erase them, you know? Um, so if you don't know that, then how do you feel that reconciliation ev even makes sense? You know, I would be like, well, what am I reconciling? Right? Like, aren't they all rich now? I've heard that too. People say, oh, aren't all indigenous rich? They all have casino money. What, what do I care? They don't pay taxes. Like, you know, all this stuff. You know, and those are, are hard 
things to push back against, right? So I'm, I'm curious, how do we mainstream more of of just these stories? You know, because I feel it goes from Plymouth Rock, Thanksgiving to California. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that's why I guess I think the local is the way to go because, um, you know, if we get to really know the place we're at, very soon we'll find out about a group of indigenous people or peoples who were removed from this place that we we are settled in. And it's there where I feel like the impact is the greatest. Um, and I see this, you know, I feel like uh, settlers can do this. Let's say they could do it in their city. They could do it in their church, temple, synagogue, mosque. Uh, they could do it. A lot of people are in, in an activist or organization. They might be environmentalists. They can do it in their environmental organization. That's a huge place to be practicing reconciliation because the, for me, the founding crime of, uh, or one of two founding crimes really is dispossession, stealing native land. So I feel like the most profound act of reconciliation is about returning land or making it possible for land to be shared. And so environmental organizations are key to that. So are city parks and recreation. So are state parks. So are national parks. (laughs) Uh, Any place that has land these are like incredible opportunities for uh, reconciliation. And church, religious, faith organizations, these are, are really important spaces for reconciliation because all religious faiths have some history with indigenous people in this country uh, that was largely negative. And many faith organizations are realizing that and trying to take steps uh, to change that. And so I feel like if if a settler person just scratches the surface of where they are or some organist or you know at a university for example you scratch the surface and you find out you know I'm at a land grant university there was an incredible article that came out a few years ago called land grab universities that's about how these uh these particular kinds of public universities have been funding themselves in part through the sale of indigenous land elsewhere that has become part of their endowments. And they're still making money off these endowments that are based on the theft of indigenous land. So when you start to scratch the surface, you'll see how we're also implicated in this. And it may be that many non-indigenous people walk around and never see an indigenous person uh, because this history of theft and removal has been devastating. Um, but every urban area has a thriving indigenous community. Um, and there are just so many opportunities to get to know this history, make these connections with people living today who are descendants of those communities. Um, so, and I, I don't think it's irrelevant to us. Uh, I feel like we can't really be a thriving dynamic society like I want us to be. I like many of us want our society to be without facing up to this history. And and of course this isn't the only history we need to face up to. We have so many 
abuses that have occurred. Uh, but this is one that I feel like, well, you know, I've spent my scholarly career studying this. It's something I can do particularly. I can work on particularly. And I've, if many other people are working in their own way on this issue in their own space, um, I feel like it can actually have uh, a big impact. I, I 100% agree with that. And I think, you know, the, the land is the key, right? Like it, the land was the source of the original crime dispossession. And if we don't get back to that um, at a very fundamental level, I feel like it's very hard to move the dial in, in other places, right? So when I look at something like Mount Rushmore, you know, that was a, a sacred space for the indigenous people of, of that region. And now you have, you know, these murderers blasted into the, the face of it, right? Like, why don't we just give them that back, <laughs> right? Like we can't, you know, we can't probably dynamite the faces off, you know, um, I wouldn't have a problem with that, but let's just say it, it might be hard to do. Um, like, you know, I'm, I'm being a little facetious, but not really. Right. Like, I think if we're, if we're gonna, one of my challenges with, with some of this stuff and, you know, I'm in a mood, right. So this is not reflective of, of your book. This is, this is just, I'm feeling extra black right, right now. Right. <laughs> um, you know, I feel like, a lot of these attempts at change fall just short of making settlers, you know, and, and, and you say settlers can be other people other than white people, but my mind does white people, right? So um, just short of like them feeling uncomfortable or, or truly being like put out, right? So like when we... When we reach that point where white people are like, wait, wait, wait a minute, I can't do that. Or that's preposterous. That feels like a really good white word. <laughs> preposterous. <laughs> you know, when, when it reaches that point, then the conversation got to stop. But if we're, we're talking about like, oh, there, we had a conference and there was a land acknowledgement and, you know, I burned some sage, you know, and I did all these things, then we're good. Right. But when it, when we're talking about like, yeah, hey, maybe the entire university, you've got to give that land back to those people and just close up shop. And the endowment goes to that. Right. Like, hey, here's our endowment here. Original indigenous people who lived here. This money's yours. We're shuttering the university. There's no more University of Nebraska at Lincoln. And sorry, <laughs> you know, like, when are we going to get there? <laughs> Well, you know, Philip, I would actually push back against you a little bit there because push, push, um, push. That's what we're here. Push, for. Friendly, push, push, friendly push. pushing, okay. friendly pushing, friendly pushing, nudging. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because you know, I think so. You know, the term "land back." I think when a lot of settlers hear that, they just get like this. They're like, "What do you mean? You know, am I going to have to give up my private property, my home, my land, and um, and?" So I don't think we have to go as far as saying, okay, every land grant university, you have to close up shop and give back the land to the indigenous group that was gone. But there's some really cool creative things that can be done. So one of them's happening at South Dakota State University 
I, ho- I hope I have that right. Well, anyway, if, if uh, we're off, at a university in South Dakota, I think it's, it's South a Dakota A university State. in South Dakota. We'll take right. We'll- and um, the president of that university is named Barry Dunn. And he is, and I, I, get, I may have a few of these details wrong, but I believe he's Rosebud Lakota. And he, I believe, may be the first college university president uh, outside of a tribal college or university that is indigenous. And um, that's another one of these land grab universities. And, you know, he's very aware of that. So he established something called the Wakini Initiative. And I may have that slightly off too. It's okay. It's all right. But anyway. Any, anybody but, can research this stuff. We're but just the sentiment, getting the idea. Yeah. yeah. The idea, the sentiment is that he calculated or his staff calculated exactly how much money that South Dakota State or University of South Dakota had made from indigenous uh, land sales and dispossession. And now he's putting that money back into initiatives at the university for indigenous students. He's putting money into creating spaces uh, to welcome and to make indigenous students feel like this is their home, this is their place. And I just attended something recently called a Land Grant Partners Summit, uh, where people were talking all these um this was the cool summit between land grant universities like University of Nebraska, there's 52 of us, and tribal colleges and universities, which are also land grant institutions. And the idea, we were all talking about what Barry Dunn was doing in South Dakota. And we were all talking about how can we get our universities to be doing that? Um, and we're, we're all talking about how frustrating it is that some universities think it's just enough to put up a land acknowledgement um, and leave it at that and do nothing more. Yeah. And the sage. So, you can't ever forget. The yeah, sage, yeah. The burning of the sage. It's critical. <laughs> well, we're not allowed to do that because it might set off the smoke alarm. Okay. <laughs> so we haven't gotten that far. But um, so, I mean, there's many people, again, at a kind of grassroots level, uh, the Land Grant Partners Summit. The hope, it was started by a couple people at Ohio State University, uh, non-native people. Their hope was to attract high-level administrators, vice chancellors, chancellors, deans, etc., to this event. Those folks didn't show up, but people like me did, who are, we have some pull, we're professors in a university, um, and two of us came from University of Nebraska. Now we're really committed to trying to get something going at our university, and that's going to take a while. But um, and I'm just telling you this story because I'm I want to show that like you don't have to take a huge drastic action. You don't have to close down your environmental organization, your faith organization, but you can think about what's a meaningful thing I can do, um, and. It doesn't have to stop there. I think that's also a misconception that reconciliation is a one and done thing, you know? So like if we were ever to get something like the Wakini initiative at at Nebraska, that wouldn't be it. That's not all we'd ever do, but that's something that would set in train other things that hopefully would be empowering for indigenous people who would come to the university and would set and train so many other op- things that we can't even imagine right now. And I'm not opposed to folks doing these things, right? So 
as host and provocateur, you know, just <laughs> trying to, to, you know, nudge a little bit. But but there is like that's where there's that anger, right? Yeah. Like yeah. I, I read these stories and I feel like there was nothing like short of there were no baby steps when it came to the original dispossession. Right. Like these these right. folks were brutally, brutally murdered. Right. Right. And nobody cared, you know. And and when I when I read there's an article in the New York Times that kind of covered in more detail, like the residential schools in, in Canada. And I could barely get through this. It was it was unbelievable. And 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 the fact that also Canada, because you know these places like Canada and Australia, they're they're very good at at pointing this finger at the United States, be like, oh, we're so much better than than you guys are. Like we've moved so much past this. You know, they talk to people from Canada, like, oh, you crazy neighbors to the south. And I'm like, man, we started digging around them schools and came up with like a lot of fucking dead bodies, right? So how much better are you really? It doesn't really matter, right? So it's it's from that lens mm -hmm. that I feel like we're incremental movement is good, right? But how much more time do we have for incremental movement? Like how many generations have to see their, you know, advances of of folks from their from previously get rolled back? How much like how much times are we gonna have like a standing rock that goes on the whim of United States presidential elections, right? Where Obama stops it, Trump starts it back, Biden stops it, and then who knows? Like, when do these people get true autonomy to, to truly decide their fate? Like, how can a transnational organization decide, oh, we're just going to build a pipeline through where you live at? Build that shit where white people live at, but they ain't going to do that. <laughs> well, again, ironically... They were doing it in Nebraska. They were building the Nebraska or the Keystone XL pipeline across white people's land. And that's like one of the stories in the book is that this white farm couple, I begin with this white farm couple named Art and Helen Tandrup, who Keystone XL was going to take their land and just build this through them. And they developed these alliances with eight or nine different indigenous groups, including the Ponca tribe of of both Nebraska and Oklahoma. And I don't think they started out with any intention to carry out reconciliation with indigenous peoples, but through that political alliance and those shared concerns with the environment and their right to use the land, they developed a really deep respect for indigenous peoples. And this went both ways, especially with the Ponca people. They developed a great respect for the Tandrups. And so this led to an act of reconciliation in which the Tandrups gave or returned 10 acres of land, which isn't a lot, 10 acres of land to uh, the Ponca tribe. And again, you know, I think one of the things I started out with, I, I used to be extremely cynical and I'm still cynical, but uh, I'm less cynical because I used to be this kind of person who felt like, what's the point of doing this if we can't really get true justice right now for, you know, like, so I I felt like these little baby steps, these little things, 10 acres of land, 
I used to be a person who would say, 10 acres of land? Are you kidding me? That's as a, nothing. As a New Yorker, I'm like, 10 acres of land is like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> That'd that be is, a lot, yeah. Don't like, holy but here, shit. <laughs> but here it's tiny, you know, and, and to think about, you know, Ponca people who were who had millions of acres of land stolen from them. 10 acres, what does that mean? So again, I feel like white people, settlers can get really stuck in this thing. Good-hearted, well-intentioned white settlers can get really stuck where, well, if we can't do this grand thing, we can't do anything at all. And I think that that's, I, I again, and you know, here we are at MLK Day, I think it's really helpful to take that really long view of history. And that kind of Obama, he always, always talks about the long arc of history bends toward justice. And it's deeply dissatisfying in many ways <laughs> because, because I mean, there's a it perfect just way goes... to put it. It's far more eloquent. <laughs> that is far more eloquent than I would have put it. <laughs> well, it's deeply dissatisfying because on a daily basis, we're just bombarded by the, the shortest possible arc of history, you know, like. I'm thinking about this as the the primary or the caucuses in Iowa today. I mean, we can get so obsessed with what's going to happen today at the Iowa caucuses yeah. that with we this just pack of lose. lunatics. Yeah, we we lose sight completely of like this larger, long term thing. And but it's also dissatisfying and and horrifying often because. It feels like, well, we're moving in a certain direction. We're moving toward that beloved community, toward that thriving, dynamic society where people are, there's mutual respect for everyone. We're moving there. And then all of a sudden, like, there's just these things that pull us back. And um, so for me, it's very hard to maintain that, that long view. What gets me through is just the incredible relationships that um, through doing some of this work, that I've been able to form with uh, people here in Lincoln in the indigenous community. And also like, it's a long story, but at the Center for Great Plains Studies and through my work with Kevin Aberesk on Reconciliation Rising, we reached out to the people whose land the University of Nebraska is sitting on, whose land the city of Lincoln is sitting on. Those are the Oto Missouri people. They were displaced from this region, and they live in Red Rock, Oklahoma now. And um, we established a relationship with them, or a small group of them, about almost two years ago. And a delegation of them came up in May 2022, and they asked our mayor to establish an Oto Missouri Day, and she agreed to that. And so we've uh, we've celebrated two Oto Missouri Days, and um, the first time I'd say about 60, 75 Oto Missouri came mostly from Oklahoma. Some came from elsewhere. And this last year, only about 25 people came, but it was still incredible. We spend two or three days with each other. We eat a lot of food together. <laughs> and what's been really cool is various entities in our community have really stepped up and gotten involved. Uh, so uh, in, again, environmental organizations have been really involved faith organizations, our local in, uh, urban Indian community has been really involved, the university. So that kind of gets me through. I, I like hold on to that because it's it's so satisfying. And I've told this story before, but at the very end of our Oto Missouri Day, 
uh, we went with our 25 friends out to this uh, nearby state park where a lot of them have ancestry who had settled there. And uh, we just spent like three days with each other. And oh gosh, I can't tell you how like rich our friendships are. I mean, the some of the richest friendships I've ever had in my life. And so when they left, I was like really sad. I was, you know, really, really sad. And because I wasn't going to see them again for a while. And my husband and I were out with them and, and we took our dogs for a walk after they left in the park. And we just saw these incredible butterflies. I mean, thousands and thousands of butterflies migrating through. And this is like this incredibly magical time. And then like I get in the car to come home. It's about an hour and a half drive home. My husband's driving. I'm, I decided, well, I'll look at the New York Times app, you know. Yeah, not a good big idea. Big mistake. <laughs> big, big mistake. Any, anytime you think to yourself, you're having an amazing day and, and your first thought is to open the New York Times app, don't do no, that. No, no. And it was- Absolutely it was so, do not do that. It was so weird because it was like, to the rest of the world, what was in that New York Times app was reality. And what we had just experienced was this was something that wasn't reality. But what it actually felt like was what we had experienced in that three days was real. That was that was how the world should really be and could really be. And all this other stuff was some weird artificial layering human beings had created on top of it. I, I know it sounds weird, no, but it was it, just, I, I totally get yeah. it. And this is, you know, this is not a, a space where I'm advocating for cynicism. Like I, I'm on the record <laughs> kind of talking about, I, I actually feel like cynicism is one of the ways in which the the lunatics win, right? Like they, they make us feel like there's nothing we can do. Um, this is just the way it is. The, the, the world is set up in these inequities, much like the way gravity works, right? So they kind of use this notion that these are just the natural ways of, like, of people. Well, like, we know people are just tribal by nature, and this is what we do, and everyone's done it at one point or another, right? Like, it becomes this story, like the story of dispossession becomes everybody's story, which makes it nobody's story, right? So my frustration is not in service of cynicism, but it's in a, a holding up of that, of that mirror, right? Because I, I feel like I had to go through years and years and years of my, my, my so-called education included none of this, right? And and so you're it is very much a concerted effort to have that that story of American exceptionalism, right? Manifest destiny, whatever you want to call it, that erases the trauma that is is fundamental to the founding of of this country. You know, we had a 1619 project, the lunatic, the lunatics need 1776 project, right? And it's always that. So that's where my my pushing comes from, right? That despite Obama, and I know he, he's he he didn't come up with the arc of justice, the arc of history is long or whatever he says. But I, I, I think that also does sort of a disservice to progressive movements because it implies like the liberal story of America. Mm-hmm. That it's yeah basically progress all the way through. And it's like, nah, dude, we had the Civil War. Then we had Reconstruction for like a minute. Then we had um, almost another hundred years of Jim Crow. Jim Crow, yeah. Right? And, and now I would argue we're at the end of another Reconstruction, <laughs> right? Like, 
the the forces are aligned to take away whatever what little goals we've made are like trying to erase those. And 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 that's where the wrestling with these stories. Cause like I said, when I was reading these stories, I'm like, wow, this is today. You know, mm-hmm. it, the date might say 1876, but it might as well be 2024. You know, the dispossession is, is, it's still happening, you know, not just here, but all around the world. You know, we had a, a lunatic like Bolsonaro, whose goal was to erase indigenous people in the Amazon, right? So that's where I'm, I'm, I'm challenged. And um, that's where that frustration comes from. <laughs> I want to, I want to get you out on, on, on this question before we get to the drop. Um, Cause we didn't really get a chance to, to, to talk about this notion, but I think it's, it's very important. The intergenerational nature of, of this, you know, this is weaved throughout the book, this notion of there being intergenerational trauma that that happens in in these spaces um and and we're talking about it through the lens of indigenous folks but i've seen the same conversations around like black people and and and, and other folks who have been dispossessed around the world so i want to give you an opportunity to kind of chat through you know how this reconciliation how these pockets of, of movement and progress help everyone to deal with these notions of of intergenerational trauma and then we'll we'll get to the the drop final segment of the show well one of the first things i do in the book is i talk about where i grew up in colorado and colorado has perhaps something a massacre that occurred there that other than wounded knee in south dakota that yeah the sand creek massacre i I have a sense, and maybe it's just because I'm a geeky historian, but I have a sense that many Americans know about Sand Creek now, uh, many more than than used to. It's perhaps in the top, you know, like five massacres they might be able to ma- to, to name. And so when I started really digging deep into that, and a lot of people have done incredible historical work on this, but when I started looking at the the narratives about it. And some of the narratives are written by indigenous people, some of the descendants of Cheyenne and Arapaho people who were killed in that massacre. And some are written by soldiers who fought in that, fought, (laughs) participated in that massacre. And there were two soldiers who refused to take part in it. And they their refusal to take part and then their decision to report their commanding officer John Shivington led to three formal inquiries about the Sand Creek massacre and that's one of the reasons we know about Sand Creek is because of those inquiries and when i read the accounts of what the soldiers did in the in that at that massacre i thought to myself you know there's intergenerational trauma among settlers too it's it's of a different nature it it's not as the recipient of these atrocities. It's the perpetrator of these atrocities. And there's a lot of work that needs to be done. I don't think anybody's really talked about how do we pass that down through generations too? You know, how how does a descendant of John Chivington or someone who took part in that massacre, how are they laden with the psychological and physical burdens of that history as well? And what would it mean for them to really excavate that 
And I, I'm very grateful to Indigenous scholars and, and activists who've come up with this concept of intergenerational trauma and and scientists who have confirmed that it's actual there's a scientific basis for these this kind of trauma being passed through generations. I'm grateful to them because I think that they're willing to confront that and but I think settlers need to confront that too. The intergenerational, I don't know if we want to call it trauma or intergenerational participation in the infliction of trauma on other people. And um, so that is another reason I wanted to write this book is to think about what does that mean for people like me? And I, I think it's a, a trauma based on denial. And d- denial is such a huge problem in our society right now. I feel like that's what's behind everything you're talking about, about like refusal to confront this history. It's a denial and we know what happens to our bodies when we deny the reality you don't of want the to break, world. You don't want to crack the mask, the veneer. Right. It's so unhealthy. It's 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 one of the reasons our society is so unhealthy is this denialism. So it's it's much easier to assume that these are the things that all those other people do, but not us. We never right. do these things. Right. Um right. wonderful, wonderful conversation with you. You know, we can go on and on and on. But I'm I'm promised to get you out of here on time. So I want to get to the drop. And the drop is an opportunity for us to share anything at all with our our readers. And I don't have a specific drop other than kind of an evergreen drop, which is to deeply engage in and read the work of Martin Luther King Jr. Do not just get caught up in the basics of the I Have a Dream speech and, and all the rest of that. He, he is prolific in his, in his writing, in his scholarship. There are more books. He's written books, so you can read his own words, his own speeches. He has had tons of, of, of scholars who have committed to understanding his life and his place in um, liberation movements that go far beyond just I have a dream and and all the rest of it. So I'll have some some recommendations in in the show notes, but definitely I recommend everybody to to spend time with his his work. And if you are going to examine I have a dream in particular, there's a great book published by Haymarket called The Speech. And it's it's um put together by um um Andrew um not Andrew Young. Um fuck he's a Bajan English guy. Um I'll have it in, in the show notes. But um, nonetheless, he's the author of the book, and he he does a contextual look and reimagining of the I have I have a dream speech in the book. It's called the speech. It'll be in the in the show notes. But Gary Young, I knew it would come to me. Uh, Gary Young, but that's my drop on MLK Day. Cool. Spend time with MLK. So, what do you have for us? Well, first, I just have to say I'm having kind of a full circle moment here because when I was a senior. In college, I started work on the Martin Luther King Papers Project. And boy, that's like, for me, that's one of those other moments in my life that's kind of like attending the um, final ceremonies of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada. It was uh, one, just the project had just started and we were just getting all this material from the King Center in Atlanta. And Clay Carson at Stanford University was running this project. And I just got to spend so much time reading Martin Luther King speeches, like 
first drafts of speeches. And oh my God, it was so inspiring and moving. And so, yeah, I, I really second your recommendation. Another one I'd want to make is someone I've known for like 25, maybe 30 years named Ned Blackhawk. He just won the National Book Award. Uh, he's Western Shoshone. He just won the National Book Award in nonfiction for his book, The Rediscovery of America. And I'm just so excited for him. And that book is, if people want to stop denying this history and want a source for learning more, I just think it's such a great book. And um, I'm just so excited to have seen that that won the National Book Award this year. Oh, that's that's awesome. It sounds like a, a great recommendation and a, a book that I'll likely be adding to, <laughs> to my shelf. Yeah. Margaret, I can't thank you enough for taking time on, on this holiday, a National Day of Service, to, to record with me. The book is called After 100 Winters, In Search of Reconciliation on America's Stolen Lands. Um, this has been a, a, a great conversation. Thank you for, like, pushing back and nudging me and enjoying <laughs> and hopefully enjoying my feistiness. This has been really an, an awesome conversation. I I totally loved it because it it's just wonderful to actually talk about these ideas with people and to have somebody who's like, well, I don't know about this. Do you, you know, it's, it's just great because I think that's how we all grow. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you again. And I'm excited to, to, to hear what our listeners have to say, because I know this is going to be one that's going to make them really excited and, and passionate as well. So thanks again for being on the deep dive with me. Yeah. And thank you so much, Philip. I really appreciate it. You can listen to the deep dive via Apple podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.